Some events go to show that tragedy can come at just about any time, at any place. A man with a deep, seething hatred for society. A family life that could be considered anything but normal. And a violent resolution that will never be forgotten. All this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. It was July 18th, 1984. James Hubbardy, a 41-year-old man from San Diego, approached the McDonald's in San Isidro. Step by step over the hot pavement of the parking lot, he walked closer and closer to forever change the lives of those inside and anyone who knew them. He came prepared to teach society a lesson, one that would ripple painfully through time forever. In his hands, he carried a Winchester 12-gauge pump-action shotgun. Other than that, he adorned two more guns, one 9mm Browning HP semi-automatic and a 9mm Uzi carbine. Over his shoulder was a cloth bag sagging from the considerable weight of hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon he possessed that day. Inside the McDonald's, 45 customers went about with their meals, the restaurant full of chatter, laughter, and the mechanical chorus from the cash registers as customers placed their orders, unaware that chaos was on its way through the door. James pushed through the glass threshold, the bells above his head sounding off as one final hopeless warning to all those inside. James Hubbardy, a man who suffered at the hands of his own mind. Two days before James stepped foot into that McDonald's, he had been waiting by the phone for hours, faithfully anticipating the familiar ring. He was calm and quiet on the outside, but his mind swirled with chaos and desperation. A couple of days prior, James had spoken with his wife, Etna, telling her that he believed he may have had a serious mental problem and that he was sure he needed help. That was why James was sitting by the phone that day. A few hours before, he had called a mental health clinic and requested an appointment. He spoke with the receptionist and was incredibly polite and level-headed. He simply knew that he had to speak to someone professionally. Hopefully, they could help him. The receptionist told James that someone would call him back soon, a little later that very day, in fact. But the call didn't come. James was left waiting by the phone, unmoving, for several hours, entirely unaware that not only did the receptionist misspell his name, but she also, due to James's politeness and calm demeanor, marked his situation as a non-crisis, which were typically handled within a 48-hour window of time, not same day, like she had told James it would be. James eventually couldn't wait any longer, so he stood up from the phone and walked out the door without saying a word. Etna heard his motorcycle fire up and drive off, its loud rumble trailing off into the distance. Where James went that day, no one knows, but Etna recalled that James returned home in a much better mood, far more content than he had been since he voiced his concern to her over his mental state. He sat and had a pleasant meal with his wife and their two daughters, aged 12 and 10, before going on a short family bicycle ride to the park. 
After returning home and putting the girls to bed, James and Etna sat down in the living room together and watched a movie. By the looks of it, James and Etna were a good couple with a loving family. Where it all went wrong may have been considered a mystery. But the truth of the matter was much darker than that. James was hardly a model father or even what could be considered a good man. James had a past that built a rather worrying profile. James was born on October 11th, 1942 in Ohio, where he spent a good portion of his life. When he was only a child, he was often cast out by the other children who would whisper amongst themselves about how James came from a broken home, a bad home, which was a foreign concept to the Amish and Mennonite children who occupied the majority of his school. James's parents had separated when he was only seven years old old and James took it incredibly hard. Being surrounded by children who not only failed to understand but muttered about him behind his back made the situation all the more difficult. James was largely alienated and a loner who had no interest in the things other kids his age did like sports. In fact in seventh grade he was the only boy in his class that didn't play on the school's football team but he sure had an affinity for guns even before the eighth grade. Fellow students recalled James having a rather short temper as well. While it didn't get him into trouble, he was quick to become furious if someone upset him. One particular moment that made him angry and upset happened when he was sitting alone in the classroom while his classmates all played football outside, something he did quite often. Getting into a minor altercation with his teacher, his teacher rudely sneered at him, saying, If you were a real man like all the other boys, you'd be out playing football. Throughout his later years in high school, things weren't that much different. James enjoyed quiet activities that required intellect rather than physical activities. In fact, he participated in so few things that he didn't even show up to have his photo taken for the yearbook when he graduated in 1960, so no photo was entered into the book. Around 20 years of age and free from the discomforts of school, James spent much of his time with Etna, who he married a short time later, before the two eventually moved in together and lived with James's father. But despite the fact that James didn't care much for school, he did have a passion that he knew he'd need to get an education to pursue. He wanted to be a funeral director, so he became a student of Malone College in Canton, Ohio, received a diploma from Pittsburgh Mortuary School, and got his first job as an apprentice embalmer, but never fulfilled his goal of becoming a funeral director because he failed to pay $15 in fees for his funeral director and embalmer's license. But one man named Don Williams who James had done embalming for in the past, believed that James was never fit to be a funeral director at all. He would actively avoid working with others and preferred to be alone with the bodies in the embalming room, not out front working with families as a funeral director has to. So it's quite possible that James sabotaged his own goals due to his incessant need to be a loner. Just about anyone who knew James knew that there was something not quite right about him. A pastor that knew James from the church services he attended with Etna and her family described him as bitter against God, a man who had pent-up emotions but would sometimes have explosive displays of personality. Just talking to him made it abundantly clear that James was full of inner conflicts that were wound up tightly. 
Any job he held, his co-workers described him much the same, saying he was afraid, angry, and a bit paranoid a lot of the time. One of his old bosses noted that James was very displeased with the United States and often thought about leaving it behind. He was known to hold grudges and never let up on anyone who angered him until it was made right in James's eyes. One of his neighbors recalled his home life, often hearing him screaming in rage. He kept a large gun collection in his home and posted numerous no trespassing and beware of dog signs all around his property in a clear display of overkill to keep people away from him. James hated his neighbors as they often complained about his German shepherds for an assortment of reasons such as constant barking and destruction of property. Anytime a neighbor complained, it further infuriated James. And then James and Etna had children. Their two daughters would often talk about witchcraft and Satan worship. They'd conduct seances together and brag to just about anyone about them, even their babysitter claiming that spirits had told them vital information about family events, such as when they would finally move away from Ohio. Eventually, James's two daughters and two daughters of a neighboring family got into a fight. James didn't like this, not one bit. He told the parents of the two girls that he'd get even for the altercation. It was about two weeks later when he did something very much out of character. He invited some of the neighborhood kids over for Cracker Jacks. The children came, one of which was one of the girls from the fight. James noticed her approach and excused himself to step inside his house. The door flew open and out came his daughter, Bobby, who marched right up to the girl and punched her hard in the eye, a clear setup so that James's daughter could get even. The girl's father, needless to say, was rather upset and questioned James as to why he would have set up that fight. James told the man he always paid his debts, good or bad, and that it was only a matter of time before he got even with the rest of the kids. Over two whole months later, James was still fuming for revenge, and so he sent his daughter Bobby to hide in some bushes by the road while he watched. Bobby waited there as the neighbor's daughter walked down the sidewalk. Once close enough, Bobby pounced from the bushes and struck the girl. Etna wasn't a positive influence on her children either. Etna once told their other daughter, Zelia, to physically assault one of her classmates, which sparked a dispute between herself and the child's mother, which led to Etna threatening to shoot the woman dead with a 9mm pistol. Police were called, Etna was arrested, but police didn't confiscate the weapon. On top of being a loner and having a family that resorted to violent resolutions, James found it very difficult to maintain employment. There was another common sign of a potential mass murderer in the making. Constant and repeated failure and a lack of ability to fit in. While these things alone don't mark a killer, another alarming sign came to light from a former co-worker of James's. When James had money problems, he started to blame the government. It was no secret that he didn't enjoy the United States, but this was different. This was more unstable. He believed that President Ronald Reagan himself was conspiring against him and even went so far as to write a letter to apply for residency in Mexico. And in January of 1984, feeling that Ohio no longer had anything left to offer him, he and his family moved to Tijuana, Mexico, but only remained there for a short time before they returned to the United States, this time settling in San Isidro, a community of San Diego, California. 
James applied for a new job once there as a security guard. The first company turned him down outright due to an obvious attitude problem, but James got a job as a security guard with a different company shortly after. But unsurprisingly, that job didn't work out either, and he was fired. Some sources claim that after this most recent failure, James attempted to kill himself, but Etna stopped him, something Etna would later claim she regrets doing. This was around the time that James had finally figured out that there may have been something wrong with his brain. But after the clinic failed to call him back, James just took that as the one final blow. He wouldn't allow himself to be screwed over again. He even confided in Etna, telling her that society had their chance and that he now had to take matters into his own hands. Before leaving for McDonald's that fateful day, he told his daughters and wife goodbye, giving his wife a kiss before he went to leave, something she found unusual as he wasn't normally affectionate like that. She asked where he was going, he stopped in the doorway and looked back at her a little. Hunting humans, he said. And that was it. Very soon after, James pushed his way into the McDonald's in San Isidro and aimed his shotgun at one of the workers there, a 16-year-old boy. He pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. Shockingly, the worker thought it was simply a very bad joke someone was playing on him. James checked his gun and successfully fired it into the ceiling. At that moment, stunned and deafened by the blast, the restaurant erupted into panic. James withdrew his Uzi and shot two workers and demanded everyone to get on the ground, claiming that he had killed many and would be killing many more. One man named Victor Rivera, who was only 25 years old at the time, attempted to calm James down and keep him from shooting anyone else. But no one could tell James what to do anymore. This was about revenge. Revenge against the society that had abandoned and conspired against him. These people had to pay so that his voice could truly be taken seriously. So he shot Victor Rivera 14 times while he screamed helplessly from the floor. Little did anyone know the nightmare was only beginning. As customers sobbed uncontrollably and did their best to hide, James came upon a group of women and children all grouped together, pleading for their lives. He filled them with rounds from his Uzi and shotgun, killing most of them right there, one pregnant woman being shot 48 times with the Uzi. The woman had another child, a son, who was only eight months old, beside her. The baby cried loudly, and without a shred of compassion or mercy in his heart, James took his 9 millimeter pistol and shot the infant in the center of the back, killing him instantly. He continued firing at people, looking to kill as many as he could, specifically those being shielded by their families and loved ones. Three 11-year-old boys, having no idea what was going on inside, rode their bikes to McDonald's to get some drinks. James opened fire on the boys from inside, striking all three of them. Of the three boys, two died, David Delgado and Omar Hernandez. An elderly couple named Miguel and Ada approached the McDonald's as well. Miguel opened the door for his wife, who was met by James, aiming a shotgun at her head. He pulled the trigger and struck Ada in the head, killing her. Miguel collapsed and cradled his wife's body, wiping blood from her face, cursing James. James walked up to Miguel and executed him with a single shot to the head. Police by this time had been contacted numerous times, however dispatchers sent them to the wrong McDonald's. 
Police eventually did arrive at the correct location and set up a command post, but didn't know how many shooters were inside due to the fact that James was using different guns. A SWAT sniper took a position on top of a post office building that had been next door and searched for James and for a clear shot to take him out while he continued on his rampage. The massacre lasted 78 minutes and James had fired off a minimum of 245 rounds of ammunition. After that point, the SWAT sniper got a clear shot and sent a round right through James's aorta and out the back of his spine, sending him to the floor in a bloody, heaving mess. The sniper watched his final movements before he died right there in front of the service counter among all the dead that he had killed. Once police entered the building, they discovered the horror, the truth that James had killed 21 people and seriously wounded 19 others. Only one of the people shot lived long enough to make it to the hospital where they died shortly after. The total victims, whether wounded or killed that day, ranged from four months old to 74 years old. Local funeral homes had to resort to using a nearby civic center in order to hold all of the wakes for all of the dead. And within only two days of the shooting, the McDonald's was renovated and refurbished, with some employees hoping that it would return to the way things were and not forever be marked by the terror that occurred there. But that wouldn't be the case. It was eventually decided that the McDonald's would be torn down and a monument would be erected to remember those who had been victimized that day by the merciless killer, James Hubbardy. He was a man who killed as though he was made for it, as though it was his sole purpose in life. And to him, perhaps, that was the case. His number of victims, either suspected or confirmed, makes the skin crawl either way. In this episode, we discuss the case of one of America's most prolific serial killers, Samuel Little. Let's open the serial killer file. It was September 5th, 2012, at a homeless shelter in Louisville, Kentucky. The shelter was full of people down on their luck, but one man among them was in a much more dire situation, one that he himself had caused. Police arrived at the homeless shelter and found who they were there for, Samuel Little. But this was no youthful adolescent. It wasn't even someone middle-aged. No, police slapped a pair of handcuffs on a 72-year-old man who appeared to be no threat to anyone. But that assumption would be quite wrong, in a way that not even police could have expected. They were there to have Samuel Little extradited to California to face a narcotics charge. Upon taking some of Samuel's DNA, the horrible truth began to unravel and the terror that was Samuel Little was about to come to light. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, 
From haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. On June 7, 1940, Samuel Little was born in Reynolds, Georgia. His mother was believed to have been a prostitute, and his father's presence in his life isn't known whatsoever. It was possible that Samuel's mother became pregnant from one of her clients. With a child and a plethora of new responsibilities, Samuel's mother took him, packed up, and moved to Lorraine, Ohio where Samuel's grandmother resided. It was at this time that his grandmother started to take care of him, his mother fading out of the picture more. This was a recipe for a dysfunctional child, and Samuel's childhood held true to that idea. He attended Hawthorne Junior High School and was often getting into trouble. This aside, his grades were lower than average as well. By the age of 16, Samuel was getting around, traveling from Lorraine, Ohio to Omaha, Nebraska, where he was arrested for breaking and entering. Samuel was sent to an institution for juvenile offenders. This place would do nothing to stop him from evolving as a criminal. Before he was even 25, he had spent three years in prison for breaking into a furniture store in Lorraine. In his late 20s, Samuel moved back in with his mother, who had since relocated to Florida. It was here that he held a few different jobs, one of which involved working at a cemetery. Then, Samuel had decided that staying put in one place truly wasn't for him at all, so he started to travel around the country, with his criminal demeanor not subsiding in the least. In fact, it only became worse. He had been arrested and sentenced to prison numerous times for crimes as petty as shoplifting and as severe as sexual assault and armed robbery. If any of the heinous crimes he had committed were enough to keep him in prison, many lives would have been saved, but that's not the case, sadly. By the time 1975 came around and Samuel was in his mid-30s, he had been arrested 26 times in 11 states for similar crimes. Despite his relentless pursuit of a criminal lifestyle, Samuel was continually released from prison and, unfortunately, innocent women would pay the ultimate price. It was 1982 when Samuel Little was arrested and charged with the murder of a 22-year-old woman named Melinda LaPree. This was in Mississippi, though while under investigation for this murder, which he wasn't indicted for, he was transferred to Florida. It was here that he was brought to trial for another crime, but not just any other crime. The trial was for the murder of yet another woman, 26-year-old Patricia Mount, whose dead body was discovered the same year that Samuel was arrested for the murder of Melinda LaPree. 
Witnesses for the prosecution were able to point to Samuel as the man who they had seen Patricia Mount spending time with the night before she vanished. However, the court wasn't fully convinced by the testimonies of the witnesses and made a tragic mistake. Samuel was acquitted in January of 1984. Released after reasonable suspicion regarding two murders, if only the court system had known what horrors lived inside Samuel that he was yet to unleash. In 1984, Samuel was arrested yet again for kidnapping, assault, and the strangulation of a 22-year-old woman named Lori Barros. Thankfully, Lori survived the attack. After only a month, he was found with yet another woman, in the same area, this time in the backseat of a car. She had been beaten and was unconscious due to Samuel having strangled her, too. For each of these crimes, Samuel was sentenced to prison time. For the attempted murder of two women, Samuel served only two and a half years. He was released in February of 1987, and he moved to Los Angeles immediately upon his release. He committed over ten more murders here, but he was far from finished. In fact, he would continue his murder rampage all the way until 2005. After his capture in 2012 at the homeless shelter, he was tied to more and more murders, and the Melinda Laprie case was reopened. Overall, Samuel Little was connected to the murders of 93 women across numerous states. He was a traveling killer for about half of his life, and it was found that he had been murdering women since 1970. On September 25th, 2014, Samuel was found guilty and finally sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Despite the overwhelming evidence against him, Samuel continued to proclaim his innocence until 2016. But it was a little over two years later, in November of 2018, that Samuel began to confess to murders, and in May, sat down and spoke with a Texas Ranger. It was here where the floodgates truly began to open, and eventually Samuel Little confessed to dozens of murders, totaling more than 90, across 14 states. In late November of 2018, the FBI had announced that due to Samuel's confessions and information on where he had dumped bodies, they were able to confirm 34 of his confessions, and the story just continued to unravel, with more and more dead women caught up in Samuel's web of murder. Samuel Little has drawn many portraits over the time he's been incarcerated. Portraits of the women he killed, the lives he snuffed out. The FBI released many of these portraits in hopes of solving the trail of cold cases left in Samuel's wake. At least one of them has solved a case. Samuel is now bound to a wheelchair and suffers from diabetes and a heart condition, a shell of his former self serving three life sentences without the possibility of parole after being convicted for only three murders. 
At 79 years old, his death could be just around the corner, but it's quite likely that many of Samuel's victims will never be identified, and the people that knew and cared and loved them have never and will never know peace or closure. Many of those people have surely passed on without answers regarding the disappearances of the people they cared for. If only Samuel Little had been punished more efficiently for his endless record of crimes, so much pain and heartbreak could have been avoided, and many of his victims would still be alive today. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.